Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. 2020 has been a massive year for electric vehicles. Tesla and NIO have surged to all-time highs, and Nikola Motors helped kicked off an epic SPAC boom this summer. While Nikola Tesla's namesake companies have dominated the headlines, we've seen a bunch of smaller EV companies come public or announce plans to do so. At the same time, the market has rediscovered some EV-related stocks that have been public uh, for years. Molly Fool, senior auto analyst John Rosevere joins the show this week to help shed some light on some of these less, less well-known EV players. John, great to have you back on the show, as always. And it's great to be here, as always. Uh, just off the top, before we, before we dive into uh, some of these companies, you look at the activity in the automotive space this year. I pulled a stat from New York Times earlier this week. SPAC transactions just with automotive businesses this year, that special purpose acquisition companies, just with automotive businesses this year have totaled nearly $10 billion. Have you ever seen anything like this in the auto space, this much excitement and demand uh, for new issues in, in this sector? No. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, seriously, no. And, and it's all... You know, Tesla's stock ran up to crazy levels, and then you know, Neo, which went public a while ago, one of the Chinese automakers, uh, ran up, and and everybody said, "Whoa, I got to get into this party." And and we've seen these deals come out of nowhere. Uh, I've been joking with some of my colleagues that you know, what are the electric vehicle companies we remember from 2012 when Tesla was first big that seemed to go away? Which ones will come back? Well, Fisker was kind of one of them, and we're going to talk about that at some point. We actually, I think we did talk about that in the last time. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a gold rush right now. Uh, what it reminds me of is uh, internet infrastructure companies in 1999. I think we've had that conversation before, uh, which implies there will be a shakeout. But of course, history does not always repeat, though it does rhyme. Uh, yeah, it's it's really remarkable. Right. I mean, yeah. you mentioned uh, about a month ago, we had a podcast where we talked about the new Ford Bronco, some consolidation on autonomous vehicles. We also talked about a lot of these new EV companies. So Nikola, Highline, Fisker. Uh, but there's just been so much activity that we've got, we've got a whole other show uh, worth of companies to talk about. And so I want to want to dive into that. We want to start out um, with some of these, these Chinese companies. NIO, as you mentioned earlier, for the longest time, had been the only uh, Chinese automaker, uh, at least in the electric vehicle space, to be publicly traded. Um, in the U.S., well, that's changed recently. The news today uh, is Xping Motors is coming public today on the New York Stock Exchange under ticker XPEV. This is a company using the, the traditional IPO route uh, versus some other companies that have used SPACs, like we discussed earlier. What do folks need to know about Xping, John? Uh, well, Xping went public this morning. Uh, it was projected to price around 12. It priced around 15. Uh, it, it was about 100 million uh, shares. These are American depository shares. Uh, I, it, we know what those are. They raised about 1.5 billion. Uh, they have no. This is. This is not one of those Chinese electric comp car companies that is promising to come to the United States. Uh, they're going to compete in China. They're going to compete with companies like Tesla that you may have heard of, <laughs> Neo that you may or may not have heard of, uh, and some others that we'll get to. Uh, their newest vehicle is the P7, which is a really nice looking sedan, uh, about the same size as a Model 3. Uh, the key distinction there is that where Tesla twos tunes its cars for taut handling and performance, uh, Xpeng is aiming more for 
sort of a cushy ride. They say that's better adapted to the Chinese market where we have traffic jams and potholes and things like that, uh, and not so much of people ringing out their sports cars on back roads. Right. And so, so this is made for, for a different consumer than we would see in the U.S., where that, that Tesla vehicle is much more sporty driver's car type thing. Right. Yeah. This is, you know, you go test drive the Tesla uh, and maybe you're a Chinese consumer uh, that, you know, hasn't owned a BMW or Audi or something like that before. You go, whoa, that's kind of harsh. Uh, you know, the X-Pang, they put more attention on the interior. The seats are plusher. The stereo is really nice. Uh, the ride is soft. Think of it as it's sort of Buick soft almost from what I've heard. I haven't driven one myself. But uh you know, that's what they're aiming for, a comfortable ride to work, that kind of thing. And, you know, that's 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 a differentiator. Um, the question is whether they can deliver the quality and the range and the tech and all of that. Uh, and and as as a still emerging company. Yeah, I think the big question in China, China has been the largest market for electric vehicles for, for a number of years, continues to be so. Lots of companies operating in that space. Do you see potential for, for X-Bank to be a standout among that group and, and, and you know not shake out like you said earlier, you might have teased earlier? I don't know yet. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, it's 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 China. There's a gold rush. There's a lot of companies coming into this, uh, including probably some that we haven't heard of yet. Uh, there are a few more that haven't yet gone public that might. Uh, a company called Weltmeister that was started by uh, some BMW alums. Um, you know, there's room in this market, uh, but it's it has the potential to become a really huge market. But so far, it's not. And and companies like Neo, Xpeng, Li Auto. Uh, which are all competing broadly in the Tesla-ish kind of space, upscale electric vehicles with some performance and good range and so forth, uh, and you know where you're expecting comfortable seats and a nice stereo and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's possible that they're going to be taking share to the extent they do from from Tesla rather than you know winning over lots and lots of new buyers. Uh, it's early to say which way this market is going to go. Uh, in X-Bank's favor, they do have their own factory. It opened a couple months ago. Uh, they also have a deal with a, a big Chinese contract manufacturer uh, that builds their first model, which is a, a, a small electric SUV. Um, so they have something there. They just got a whole bunch of cash in the bank. They did a 500 million raise earlier in the summer. Uh, you know, So they've raised $2 billion here uh, in the space of a couple of months. They have another model, uh, a smaller sedan, I think, coming to market next year uh, that could give them some volume. They have the production capacity to build. Uh, I was just looking at this this morning. I think it's a total of 250,000 vehicles a year. Uh, could they get there? I, that will depend on quality and how they compare to some of the other names that we've talked about and will talk about. Uh, you know, They're not a slam dunk winner, but the potential addressable market uh, could be huge. Yeah, it's it's interesting, John. You know, as you say, that their ability to raise a lot of capital here in the past few months. It wasn't that long ago, a year ago. A lot of these companies were struggling uh, to get access to capital. So I guess this the shift in the market can uh, can really change uh, the competitive dynamics in, in that in that market, right? Some companies that might not have been able to get financing to bring their vehicle to market now are in a position uh, to do so. You mentioned Li Auto uh, briefly. That's another company, another Chinese EV company uh, that's come public in recent months. So it went public on the Nasdaq under ticker number ticker symbol LI on July 30th. It's a five-year-old Chinese EV company raised over a billion dollars um, in its IPO. What can you tell us about this company and its approach? 
Uh, Leona's take is a little different. They have an electric SUV uh, with an onboard range extender, which is basically a gasoline-powered generator. And if you were familiar with the original Chevrolet Volt, where it was pitched as an electric car with you know an engine that recharged the batteries rather than drove the wheels. It's the same kind of thing. And their their take is that there are parts of China uh, where there is interest in electric vehicles, but there isn't much charging infrastructure. On the other hand, there are gas stations. So basically, uh, think of it as a really, really smart plug-in hybrid with uh, you know, some real world range that's beyond what you associate with a public, with a plug-in hybrid, but functionally, you know, if they need more range, they can put gas in it instead of recharging it. Uh, they think, they think this is a bit of a competitive advantage. Uh, management seems really sharp. I don't have a strong read on them yet. It's on my things to do next week. Sorry, guys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> been looking at XPeng the next couple, last couple of days, uh, but this is—it's it, a company that is well regarded by Wall Street, uh, perhaps more so than um, XPeng might be. Uh, so people who've taken deeper looks at this uh, have come away impressed. Uh, there's a strong buy rating on it uh, from at least a couple of the major banks, um, and and. You know, their their vehicle looks good. Uh, they have a production plan. They have a growth plan. And now they have money in the bank. Uh, again, how this market is going to shape up and shake out, we don't know yet. So with this hybrid approach, John, I know one of the big things we talk about a lot with, with electric vehicles, particularly in China and Europe, uh, is the regulatory dynamics and incentives and that sort of thing. Does it, being this hybrid approach, are they still in that, that same category where, where they get some of the benefit of that, that sort of thing? They do get some benefit. I, I haven't looked into exactly how that works out, but they're presenting this as an electric car with a range extender, not a hybrid, uh, which may be taking advantage of, you know, a, a slice and dice inside China's regulations on all of this. Um, I, I do know that there's been a lot of interest in them and and uh, that their pricing net of incentive seems to be competitive. Um but no, I, I don't know for sure. Uh, certainly, there are some incentives on hybrids, but but China wants to get everybody off gasoline eventually, and they and they want to be a leader in electric vehicles related. Uh, but you know, I think Lee is pitching this as a good product for right now. Right. I think one of the things they mention is there's still limited charging infrastructure in the company, and something like this can be a stopgap until you can really build that out in a way that that's sustainable for long-term trips, um, um, that sort of thing. Yeah, you mentioned the dynamics at play in China, and there, there's a lot of companies uh, operating in that space, Xpeng, Li, obviously you mentioned Tesla has moved into China. There's other bigger companies like Geely, who's the parent company of, of Volvo and Polestar. There's also BYD that Warren Buffett invested in uh, over a decade ago. As you look out into this Chinese EV environment right now, what, which companies would you say are, are the leaders that you're most confident in and who are you more skeptical about? Tesla's the big name, but the ones we haven't talked about yet are companies that everybody knows. Um, Volkswagen's coming in a big way to this market. Uh, they're already, I mean, they're already shipping some electric vehicles, but I mean, their commitment is huge. They want to be selling 3 million a year globally by 2025. Uh, General Motors is making a big electric vehicle commitment there too. Uh, in terms of the big names, I mean, Tesla everywhere has big share of mind. Uh, it remains to be seen um, 
you know, what their sustainable level of sales is going to be there. And, and it's possible that they will be able to build more cars in their new Shanghai factory than the Chinese market is willing to absorb, at least in the near term, which raises some interesting questions. Do they send them here? Do they send them to other Asian markets? What do they do there? Uh, because to back up for folks who don't know the auto business well, uh, if you run an auto factory at below 80% of capacity as a general rule of thumb, not specific to Tesla, uh, you are probably not making money. <laughs> so, I mean, these are expensive uh, and the way uh, the tooling is amortized and so forth, uh, you got to be running at about 80% of capacity to break even on your factory. Uh, so that is a consideration for Tesla. Uh, what NEO has is NEO has put a lot of effort into infrastructure. They have a, a a good service network, a good sales network, and uh, not just recharging through their Neo Energy subsidiary, but they also have uh, a network of battery swap stations. And this is their new thing now, uh, which may give them an interesting uh, level up over Tesla. Uh, starting just in the last couple of weeks, you can buy a Neo electric vehicle. Uh, they offer two SUVs with a sedan coming soon. Um, and, and, without a battery and you subscribe to the battery swap service and there's this network of stations throughout china uh where it will automatically no humans involved swap the battery out uh three minutes end to end uh which may you know address the refueling uh concerns the recharging time concerns uh and it is certainly a, a distinct twist uh you know on the one hand it's less money up front for the consumer and for neo it's an ongoing revenue stream uh, along with their partner, CATL, which is the giant battery maker in China. Uh, they make battery cells and packs and so forth. Uh, it, it, it's a really interesting idea and one that could give them an advantage. Uh, but you know where we're going to go from there, we'll see. It depends on how fast the overall market grows, how fast uh, the most profitable parts of the market grow, You know the sweet spots between you know, $40,000, $70,000, roughly. Uh, you know, where everybody wants to be. Everybody wants to be selling $50,000 vehicles Can you? because you can usually make good margins on those, whereas uh, you've got to be really good to make margins on a 20000 vehicle um, that can compete globally. Yeah, just to underline your point, John, yeah, that, that idea of you need to be, your, your fa factory utilization rate needs to be over 80% for you to be making money. I think that's, you know, it impacts Tesla, but it impacts everyone operating in this space. Just this, this idea that we have massive amounts of, of new vehicles coming onto the market. And, uh, you know, the market's growing quickly, but is it going to is is the rate of supply growth going to overcome the rate of demand growth? And if that is the case, who are the companies that are going to be shaken out because of those financial dynamics you mentioned? Well, one thing that I think a lot of uh, investors who are maybe tech focused and growth company focused and who come to this space uh, don't quite realize is that Volkswagen can absorb those losses. Volkswagen can run an electric car plant at 40% capacity for six years until the market catches up. GM can do that. Ford can do that. Toyota can do that. Uh, Neo cannot do that. You know, uh, Tesla probably cannot do that for long anyway, uh, without, you know, multiple capital raises and so forth. Uh, but this, you know, because for Volkswagen and one single electric vehicle plant, well, they have 150 other factories around the world. And as long as, you know, they're doing well on balance, they're fine. Uh, they can afford to run a losing factory for a while until a new technology comes on or to, you know, comply with regulations somewhere or so on and so forth. Uh, it's, it's a variable that people forget um, that I mean, the, the amount of capital needed to build cars is just so massive. I mean, 
ballpark, it takes a billion dollars to build and tool a car factory. And that is money that is spent before you ship a single vehicle. Uh, you know, and that factory can maybe do 250 to 500,000 vehicles a year. You want to sell 10 million vehicles? You need a lot more factories. Uh, and 500,000 a year, by the way, is a huge auto factory. That's, that, that's really big. Uh, there are very few that are bigger than that. Uh, the trend in the industry for years has been uh, more smaller factories because it's easier to run them at capacity uh, or just close them if they're not needed, you know, idle them um, rather than, you know, run them along on one shift at 40% or whatever. It's, it's, it's a huge money game. Uh, when you see competitors like NEO, who uh, just got raised nearly a billion dollars uh, from economic development authorities uh, in and around the city of Hefei, which is China's industrial heartland, more or less, or one of them, wants to be a center of EV development and manufacturing, that city, that city government, and the, the Anhui province where it's located. Uh, and you say, well, you know, if, if economic development authorities in a country like China are backing this company, you know, maybe they can absorb capital hits for a while because their, you know, electric vehicles, homegrown electric vehicles are strongly in line with, with the government's policy priorities. Uh, you know, on the other hand, an, an American electric e car maker is going to need uh, big partnerships and, uh, you know, a lot of cash in the bank in order to pull this off. Uh, and, and as investors, we have to remember that these aren't like software companies. Uh, these are very different companies uh, with very different capital structures and massive, massive capital needs uh, before products are shipped. And, and that is one of the things that's going to be the differentiator as we sort through winners and losers over the next you know, months and years. Yeah, I think that's an important factor to remember. I guess that the example that I would give is you think a lot of these software companies, as they rate scale, it's this idea of escape velocity, you have network effects. You know, why would you, how could there be another social media company to challenge Facebook? Uh, those those dynamics aren't true uh, when it comes to the auto business, right? I mean, the, the big four automakers have had massive advantages in scale for a long time, and it's still a brutal business, very difficult to make money throughout the cycle, et cetera, et cetera. Related point, um, auto factories are auto factories. There isn't some kind of new magical manufacturing advantage you get with electric cars. Uh, powertrains, as we say, are not the hard part. The hard part, the expensive part, the part that requires the huge tools and the know-how uh, is stamping sheet metal and assembling uh, car bodies, basically. As long as cars are made out of metal, that is going to be very expensive. Uh, I do want to tell an anecdote. Years ago, Tom uh, Gardner and I had a debate uh, for full members uh, where Tom said, okay, uh, Tesla is Amazon and General Motors is Barnes and Noble, and it's 1998. And I, my answer to that was, okay, but here's the thing. Every time Amazon wants to launch books from a new publisher, they have to build a factory. Factory costs a billion dollars up front. Uh, right now, uh, Tesla, Amazon has half of a factory at that time because their Fremont plant was only up to about 200,000 a year or so. Uh, you know, uh, Barnes and Noble has 150 factories fully up and running. <laughs> what does that do to your What does that do to your question? Now, of course, Tesla's stock has soared since then, uh, but I will note they've only just added a second factory, and it's a fairly small one in China near Shanghai. Uh, just you've got to remember the capital needs here. Yeah, so, so important thing to remember when investing in this space, and that's a little little digression on automotive uh, investing. Kind of move back to our uh, our discussion of some of these new IPOs. I want to talk about Canoe. This is a, this is a really interesting uh, uh, company. On, on August eighteenth, announced it would merge with Hennessy Capital Acquisition Corp, which is another spe special purpose acquisition company, in a deal valuing the company at, at two point four 
billion dollars. Canoe is really interesting. They're going with this subscription-based model, like a vehicle-as-a-service model for how you get access uh, to their vehicles. Can, can you tell us about that? As far as I know, it's exactly what exactly what it sounds like. I mean, you know, you you pay the the set fee, uh, you get the vehicle, you get the access to charging, you get service. Uh, I think you get insurance too, or that may be optional. Uh, what they've got is is a skateboard. This is a term you will hear thrown around among electric vehicle companies. Uh, think of a skateboard, an integrated platform that's got the uh, the electric motors, the suspension, and the batteries all in it, and then you can put whatever body you want on it. The canoes is fairly small. They have little people movers on these little like minivans. They also have uh, small work trucks that you might see around a college campus, something like that. Uh, you know, uh, for with the outdoor crew, the uh, the grounds crew, and things like that. Uh, it, They've designed a few different things. Uh, they're going to start with uh, the little people mover, which I think seats six. Uh, it's like a little bus. And then there's a delivery van version of that. And then they promised by 2025 uh, a sports sedan, uh, all offered uh, via the subscription service, uh, which might actually make a lot of sense for a commercial customer because you know all your costs up front. You know, if you if you're if it's all in on a monthly fee for these vehicles. Uh, you know, they're covering service, they're taking the risk of service, they're covering charging, they're covering all this stuff. Uh, you know, that might actually be a compelling thing. I think I think you will find, though, that 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 it will be a little bit of a harder sell to consumers, at least in the near term. People don't want to, you know, a long term rental necessarily. Uh, although if you think of it as an alternative to leasing, it may find some level of appeal. But I think this is this is something that will be intriguing to commercial customers if they deliver on the product and the quality and so forth. Yeah, I mean, this is just kind of an oddball company. You look at their the design of their their product. It looks like a, a Volkswagen bus kind of uh, uh, with the way that it looks. I mean, it, and, you know, this modularity aspect of being able to use the same skateboard for a lot of different types of vehicles goes back to some of those points that we talked about earlier when it comes to, uh, you know, the costs of development and being able to to use some of those building blocks uh, for, for other vehicles that you roll out. And you see that uh, with other automakers as well. I read that they have a, a partnership with Hyundai. Uh, uh, John, how significant is that, or can you tell us anything about that that partnership? I don't know a lot about that, so uh, <laughs> sorry, guys. Um, yeah, I, I'm failing as the expert here. Uh, I, I mean, certainly, um, all of these companies uh, will draw advantages from partnerships with automakers uh, to the extent that they are getting, um, you know, production help that they are getting. Uh, to participate in the supply chain uh, at better prices. You know, if you're canoe and you're going to build 300 vehicles next year, but you can buy parts at maybe Hyundai's price plus 5%, that's a huge advantage than versus trying to go to some auto supplier and saying, hey, can you do this for me? Uh, and they'll say, who are you? And what's your minimum order? And, you know, cost it over four years and all that stuff. Uh, so those, those kinds of things. Um, you know, can be very helpful. So to the extent that they have an automaker partner, uh, that is good news. I don't know the specifics of this deal yet. Yeah, so this is what I'm going to keep an eye on, just because it's a really interesting business model, interesting company, kind of plucky. I don't know if it's one that's particularly investable, but as John mentioned, this idea that... Uh, Perhaps as they roll out the delivery van in later years, there's opportunities in logistics or, or things like that. To the extent they could find those customers, that could get me interesting. One of the other companies I wanted to move on to is Lordstown Motors. This this is another one that goes back to this idea of larger automakers selling off uh, uh, factories, etc. What can you tell us about Lordstown? Once upon a time, GM had a huge factory in Lordstown, Ohio. Uh, it made, uh, most recently, the Chevrolet Cruze compact sedan. 
uh, which GM was discontinuing, uh, their plan last year as part of a larger restructuring was to close the factory. Uh, local officials saw, you know, what had once been 5,000 jobs, but had dwindled down to much fewer, going away entirely, saw economic disruption. Uh, you know, President Trump got on Twitter and, and, and made some noise about it. Uh, and a deal was put together where this new company, Lordstown Motors, uh, would would get the factory from GM um, on good advantageous terms, along with some help from GM uh, in terms of getting their their product, which at that point was an idea for an electric pickup, into production. So that happened last year, uh, and Lordstown uh, showed their pickup not long ago. Uh, it it it's it's I'm trying to remember what it's called. The, the endurance, 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 the Lordstown endurance. Uh, it's a rugged American looking, you know, four wheel drive pickup. Uh, they think they've got um, interest from fleets and so forth. They're getting a fair amount of help from GM. They're getting some help also from uh, Workhorse, which we'll talk about in a bit, an existing company. Um, and and. Now they've got capital coming in. Uh, they've got the factory, but of course they have to tool it up and and begin production. Uh, having the factory does put them a step ahead of a big step ahead of of other companies that that may not yet be at that stage. Uh, you know, and they have GM's know how in terms of getting it tooled and and getting workers and so forth. Um, and GM has a little stake in them that could turn out to be profitable if this thing takes off. Uh, and there's also, you know, you know, the possibility that G GM could buy them out at some point um, as well, or at least, you know, GM is allied with them. Uh, so because GM is in this, it's one of the reasons we take Lordstown a little more seriously than we might otherwise. Uh, they have shown a real product. They have a factory. Uh, they have money in the bank, or they will after this SPAC deal closes. And you know they have they have some help from people who know how to do this so it, it, that that all makes it an intriguing company more so than it might appear at first glance yeah, well, the ability to acquire the factory, I mean, it reminds me, if you look back at, at the history of, of Tesla, they were able to acquire their factory uh, for a song coming out of 2008, and that, you know, Fremont became the foundation on which uh, the company was built. And so, Lordstown taking advantage of a similar opportunity, GM uh, had a little bit too, too much supply of factories and needed to, uh, to divest itself um, of one. I, and I looked at a quote from uh, Lordstown CEO Steve Byrne, where he was talking about this approach to using a SPAC. Um, and say, hey, you know, the, the traditional timeline for an IPO is maybe a year and a half. And right now we're in a race to be number one uh, to get an electric truck to market. And in a time like this, uh, being able to get that speed to market, speed to get access to your capital uh, uh, through a SPAC makes a little bit more sense on top of the big SPAC acti activity uh, we've seen this year. John, we, we hear that a lot about this race, you know, race to catch up with Tesla or race to be the first company uh, uh, to, to, to launch an electric truck and the access to capital, maybe maybe making that uh, more possible. Maybe going back to what we talked about earlier when it comes to the auto industry as a whole, you know, when we describe that race, I mean, wh how would you characterize that? Because it's not going 100 miles an hour every, every step of the way. It's a, it's a methodical process to rolling out these, these, these products. Investors who are looking at electric vehicles talk a lot about Tesla, but Tesla is not as of now, a presence in the pickup space. And, you know, the Cybertruck, as we saw it, is a niche product. It's not a product with huge commercial appeal and so forth, at least we don't think. Uh, the companies here 
that are coming. Uh, Rivian is coming with a luxury truck. That's another startup, a very well-funded one that also has a factory. Uh, it also has a major automaker partner in Ford and also has funding from Amazon. We've talked about them in the past. But it's Ford's electric truck and GM's electric truck. And what Lordstown wants to do is get out in front of things like that and get a piece of the commercial fleet market uh, that is big, that is steady, and that is lucrative. And if they can prove to those folks that hey, they have a good product at a good price, they, they will win some. But that means getting out there before Ford is shipping, you know, 30,000 electric F-150s a month, which, you know, it could be in two years if the demand's there, uh, you know, before GM is shipping, uh, you know, electric Silverados and so forth, because we know those products are coming. Um, you know, Ford is planning to start making prototypes of an electric F-150 next year, and it will be out in 2022 uh, by mid-year, uh, CEO Jim Farley has said. So they're, to extent, racing that. Uh, in terms of other companies looking at the space, we know Nikola has um, designed and talked about a pickup, but it needs somebody to build it for them. They're not going to build that in their own factory. Uh, Tesla has shown the Cybertruck, but it's not clear when that's coming, where it will be built or so forth. I mean, they, they, are, they are doing some uh, work around a potential factory in Texas, but, but the time frame is still you know, some distance away. And, and again, it's not clear whether that's a commercial fleet product. Work, uh, Lordstown is after the commercial fleet market, first and foremost. I think they'll be delighted to put leather seats in it and sell it to an individual who wants one. But, you know, I mean, selling 500 trucks to the cable company, 800 trucks to an oil field service company, that's the kind of business they want. And Steve Burns, uh, the CEO of Lordstown, um, is the kind of guy who speaks that language and can get in there and, and you know, make those sales and build those partnerships. And he's already got some interest. Yeah, it's a good point because Ford and GM already have these relationships with the cable company from fleet sales and that sort of thing. So getting in ahead of those and forming those relationships, probably particularly particularly valuable. So you mentioned uh, uh, the CEO um, of Lordstown, Steve Burns. He's actually the former CEO of Workhorse, which is the last company uh, we wanted to talk about today. This is a company that's actually been public for, for a number of years, the better part of a, of a decade, uh, but has gotten bundled up in a lot of this interest in EVs this year. And uh, I looked up this morning, the stock's up over 450% so far in 2020. So we'll get into the workhorse uh, itself here in a second. But but first, uh, what's the relationship between Lordstown and Workhorse today? Lordstown, think of it as a company that kind of got spun out of Workhorse in the sense that uh, you know, they took a, a workhorse design uh, they had on the drawing board for an electric pickup, and Steve Burns went to run Lordstown, I think, when the opportunity to buy this factory came up from General Motors. Uh, Lord's, uh, Workhorse has a 10% stake in Lordstown. Uh, that stake cannot be diluted for at least a couple years, so they, they will have a 10% stake after the SPAC deal that takes Lordstown public, uh, and they get royalties on the design for some period of time as well. So for Workhorse, this is a if Lordstown does well, this is going to be a nice income stream for a few years, uh, and and an appreciating asset too if the stock does well. Uh, it could be quite a big deal for Workhorse, which uh, is not a zero revenue company, but is a tiny revenue company at the moment. Yes, a reminder on the on the ticker for Workhorse, that's WKHS. And, and to John's point, yeah, the revenue of this company or, or the, uh, yeah, the financial of this company really leave a lot to be desired. So Workhorse generated a loss of $133 million 
$1,000 in its latest quarter on revenue of just $92,000. You're looking at the market cap today at around $1.8 billion. Clearly, uh, the market valuing this business on its potential. There's some potential in that Lordstown stake that we just discussed. When we look at the underlying business itself, the business that Workhorse is in directly, what potential do you see in that business from here? What opportunities do they have? Let's take half a step back. What Workhorse has uh, as their product is an electric delivery van. If you think of a UPS van, it's that. In fact, they designed it with input and help from UPS. Uh, they are trying. They are ramping up to production. They're going to build, I think, just a few hundred this year, but they're hoping to have their it, it, and bigger production next year. They have interest from uh, companies like UPS. Uh, they are trying to win a contract with the U.S. Postal Service, which is looking for electric postal vans. Uh, over the next several years, if they 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 were a finalist in that, if they went up against um, a couple of other groups, one of which had Ford involved, kind of indirectly, uh, if they win that, that could be a very big contract. But you know, this is they, they are they are playing no frills. You know, here's a delivery van; it works. You can order it with. You know, 70 miles of range, if that's your route, or more range, if you need more range, we don't need to worry about having 500 miles of range for the family trip, because this is a UPS van. It runs its route and goes back to the garage. Uh, they, it, It's a no-frills, no-nonsense product that will do the job. It, it's a workhorse, is the idea. They have also been um, experimenting with a drone. The idea could be in time that, uh, you know, they, they get self they build self-driving vans and the drone drops the packages on everybody's porch or something like that i mean they're they're thinking around future tech there too but you know in the near term this is an electric delivery van that just works is the idea it just works and it's available you know at a fair price uh with no more range than you need so you're not paying for batteries and weight that you don't otherwise need because with a smaller battery you can haul more cargo with the same weight of vehicle that's a consideration if you're trying to you know move freight move packages, things like that. Uh, this is this is uh, the kind of thing that could be a compelling, you know, if they can scale up, if they can deliver on quality, if they can stay afloat financially, could be, you know, a compelling little business because, uh, you know, like they're, they're, they're the opposite of Tesla in that there's nothing sexy about a UPS truck. But... <laughs> Yeah, these are products that, that if you make them at scale, they have good margins and good profits and it's steady business because, you know, UPS is going to order X thousand new trucks every year as they cycle out of, you know, the ones that now have 300,000 miles on them or whatever. Uh, they, so this is this is something that could turn into a nice profitable business if they can acquire and retain the customers and deliver the products. Right. And you look at those financials that, that I quoted earlier, clearly the market thinks we're at an inflection point where this is going to take off, and you know, uh, the vast majority of the new uh, commercial trucks, etc., that are sold are likely going to be some uh, some portion of the market that workhorse can service. When you just look at where the stock is priced today relative to the opportunity and all those ifs that you listed out, you know, how optimistic is are people being here with this company? Well, they're being optimistic with all of them, Nick. Right. <laughs> I mean, what's Tesla's market cap today? Come on, this is a company that might sell five hundred thousand cars this year, which would give it one half of one percent of the global market. Uh, but but that's what's. But Tesla's, you know, extreme run over the last year is what has all of these other companies' stocks in tow. Uh, you know, the sector is being pulled along. There is certainly some potential here. Uh, we have. I, I think uh, a lot depends on what kind of contracts they get over the next few months so we can start to make some volume assumptions that aren't just, oh, their factory should be able to do 100,000 or whatever. Um, 
you know, I think it could be worth much more than 1.8 billion in time. Uh, certainly, this could be a 10, 15 billion dollar company. Uh, you know, is that a eight or 10 bagger from here? Yeah, maybe. Uh, you might wait 10 years for that, and it might go bust. And <laughs> you know, but there is a real opportunity here if they can capture. Uh, even a smallish but significant share of the market for commercial vans and commercial vehicles uh, with this sort of down-to-earth, real-world, cost-focused approach to their products, which is the right one for this market, uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. But, but there is real potential here, even at this price. On the other hand, there is also huge risk. Uh, if Ford comes out two years from now with an electric transit that blows away workhorses' vans on specs and is $1,000 cheaper, workhorse is gone. They're toast. Nobody's going to buy it anymore because, you know, the fleets do the fleet buyers do this on on total cost of ownership over the life cycle of the vehicle. And they know what they're getting with a Ford. They may not know what they're getting with a workhorse in terms of durability and so forth. Yeah. So I think from my perspective, I'd like to see a little bit more than $92,000 in revenue, a little bit more proof of concept um, on the execution. I see some uptake from businesses. I, one thing I noted is they have a deal with, with Rider System where they're, where they're going to offer uh, some, some short-term rentals and leases to customers. Maybe that gives an opportunity for folks to dip their toe in. We can see that lead to some traction or some sales, uh, that sort of thing. But it's still very early for me uh, to see a stock bid up over 400% this year relative to the extent of execution we've seen so far. Yeah, the writer thing is obviously uh, commercial customers can come rent half a dozen of them and run them for three months and see how that goes, uh, which you know is something a company like Workhorse needs to do. Uh, it, whether that will generate significant demand over time depends entirely on how well they rate the products and what the pricing is and the cost of ownership over time. Is the range adequate? Is the cargo adequate? Uh, do they hold up over time? Uh, you know, they're, they're building the van bodies out of composite instead of sheet metal. Uh, makes them lighter weight, gives them better range. How durable is that versus an aluminum or steel truck? Uh, all this remains to be seen. Uh, certainly Workhorse has done its own testing, but that's different from, you know, UPS testing a thousand of them in the field in, you know, the snowy upper Midwest in January, where electric vehicles have traditionally had a hard time and seeing how that goes. Uh, a lot of that is going to happen over the next year or so. And then, you know, after that, they could have a big business or they could have not a big business. All right. T time will tell. There's a lot of execution between now, uh, now and then kind of wrapping everything together. John, we, we opened up the show talking about all the interest in EVs that, that's come just over this summer, all, lots of companies coming public, whether it's Nikola, High Lion, Fisker, Canoe, Xping, like we talked about earlier, Lee Auto, the list goes on and on and on. Could you give me the maybe one or two EV stocks, whether it's something we've discussed today or, or another company that you're most excited about right now and why? Um, I'm liking Neo more and more. I was down on Neo earlier in the year because they were running out of cash simply, and it seemed like they had spent too much money last year on expanding their sales network uh, and spent to the point where they couldn't keep going, maybe. Uh, but they threw a, a financial Hail Mary and connected uh, and got this big investment from the economic development authorities uh, in 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 and around the city of Hefe. Uh, and now it looks pretty good. Now all those sales and service centers uh, help them bounce back very quickly on sales when things reopened in China after the pandemic, after the first quarter. Remember, they got hit before we did. Uh, and, and you know, their second quarter sales were up like 300, 200% from a year ago or something like that. Uh, you know, they did deliver a positive operating margin after the second quarter, which was a goal they had they had stated that that Wall Street was skeptical about. Uh, so some of the interest and in, and in, 
buying activity around the stock is genuine. Of course, you know, they're still a small player, but they have big partners, um, including government backing, which counts for an awful lot in China. Uh, they are aligned with the, the government's policy goals and so forth. So I don't think they're going away anytime soon. Uh, but you know, how big can they get? I don't know. That sort of depends on how this sweet spot of the uh, EV market, the you know, the forty to sixty thousand dollar range where everybody wants to be, where Tesla's Model Three and Model Y are, uh, you know, how much, how many sales can they take away from Tesla with their, you know, some of their new whiz bang innovations like the battery swap service, where you buy the car without the battery and then subscribe to battery swaps, lowers the initial uh, entry cost, uh, which will be very appealing. You know, if it costs you forty to get into a Tesla and thirty to get in, you into a Neo that seems just as nice inside, uh, that that can be a compelling offer, uh, very compelling offer in China. Uh, I, I think they have a lot of potential and they are far enough along that we don't think they're just going to disappear. And they've built the kind of alliances where they're not going to just disappear. Whether they get to the point of selling 10 million cars a year, I don't know. But you know, I, I think their near-term growth potential is very strong uh, and that they've been de-risked quite a bit by this government investment they took on earlier this year. All right. So, so NEO is one to, uh, to, to pay attention to. You mentioned how, how big is the market going to be? Who can grab market share? Who can maintain the market share they have? Time will tell. But, John, I know you and I will be watching it and we'll be discussing it on the podcast as opportunities present themselves. Indeed, we will. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining me. And as always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for making a sound so great. For John Rosevere, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.